Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. We have talked many times and in many different ways about God's grace. We see that the grace of God is not simply a new covenant concept, but we see it in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And we see a connection between God's grace being received and the ability to worship him as he desires to be worshiped. Secondly, we see that this psalm that we're going to be looking at is a psalm of the sons of Korah. They were Levites. And there's an inherent relationship between the Levites and worship. And it's interesting because these Levites, they were saying that they were desiring something. Now, the word that we're going to come across is the word for imagining something. But in the Hebrew language, there is a relationship between this word to imagine something and desire or hope for this. And what were they hoping for? They were hoping for God's grace to be upon them because they knew the wonderful changes that come about in an individual when they are recipients of God's grace. Well, take out your Bible. We're in the midst of our study of the book of Psalms, and we're now ready for Psalm 48. The book of Psalms and Psalm 48. Now, we begin with that inscription, the first part of verse 1, where it says, a shear. A shear is a song. And then the next word is mizmor, which is that word that relates to a psalm. So it's a song, a psalm by the sons of Korah. That is the first verse in the Hebrew text. And then the next verse, verse 2 in Hebrew, verse 1 in other languages, it says, Great is the Lord, and he is greatly to be praised. Now here we see this word greatly, which is literally the word for very or exceedingly. It speaks about who God is, that he is a great God. Therefore, it is right, it is appropriate, it is proper that he be praised very much in an exceedingly large manner. So the first thing that we need to do is to ask ourselves, are we in disobedience? Are we worshiping and praising God, acknowledging in word and deed, that means by our actions, not just by speech, that's part of it, it's important, it is a requirement, but also by our behavior, that we demonstrate both to God and to others that testimony, that we believe that God is great and it is proper for him to be praised. This word begins. This is the foundation of one 
who has faith in the God of Israel. And then in the second part of that verse, it says, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Now, this is also related to worship because when we speak about his city, we're speaking about, obviously, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And it's called there his holy city. And in the end, it speaks about his holy mountain. The word that's emphasized at the end of this verse is the word holy. And this is the message for us. It is when we are acknowledging God, both in word and deed, through worship, where God is exceedingly praised, that we're going to experience holiness. What is that? As I've said so frequently, the word holiness in the Bible relates to the purposes of God, the will of God, the objectives of God. So when we are worshiping God, we are going to be committed to his purposes, and through worship, we're going to have revelation whereby we can understand not just the will of God, his purpose, but through worship, we are going to be conformed into a condition whereby we can do his will, fulfill his purposes. So here's the principle. If I don't spend much time worshiping God, it's because of two reasons. First, I don't think God is that great. I don't want to involve myself, my time, my resources in worshiping of God because it's just not that important to me to worship him. So it speaks of my lack of understanding in regard to the greatness of God. And the second reason is one who doesn't worship God as he should frequently in an exceedingly manner. When we fail to do that, it's because one is not committed to the purposes of God. So when we recognize his holiness, we're going to be committed to his purposes. This is what the sons of Korah are telling us in this passage. So in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Verse 3 in the Hebrew, verse 2 in other languages, it begins with the expression, now, there are names of cities, or excuse me, streets within cities that have this term, very common, well-known expression in, in Hebrew. And what does mean? means that which is pretty or beautiful or appropriate, proper. And the word nof has to do with a view, a perspective. So when we acknowledge the city of our God, his holy mountain, that is going to give us a perspective, a different perspective than the world. And therefore, we're going to see things correctly, rightly. And what is that going to produce in our life when we see the truth of God, the will of God, and we submit to it? Notice how this verse uh, continues. Mesos kohaarts, joy of all the earth. Very important. The message is this. If you want joy, the joy 
that brings rejoicing to all the earth, all of his creation. That joy is found in the will of God. But the only way that you can move in his will is when you understand his perspective, when you have that right view. And what the psalmist is telling us is this. It is through worship that we have God's perspective, that, that beautiful view, that right and proper perspective, whereby as we see this, we understand there is joy in the will of God. And the, the converse statement towards that is also true, that there is going to be an absence of joy when we're outside of his will. So learn this very important biblical truth, and that's this. If I want joy in my life, I'm going to be committed to worshiping God and doing his purposes. If I don't want joy, then don't worship God. Don't be committed to his objectives, his purposes, his plans, his will. It comes down to that simple truth. In God's will will be joy, the joy of all of his creation. Outside, there's going to be be that lack of, of joy. Then we see in the second part of verse, verse 3 in Hebrew, 2 in English, Hartzion, that is Mount Zion, the, the north sides. Now, it's speaking about the fact that if you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the southern portion, that is down in what many call Ir David, the city of David. This is where, for the most part, the people resided. But it was the northern side of the, the city of Jerusalem where the temple was, where worship was. So here it's simply saying that there's an emphasis when we speak of the city of our God, this holy mountain. There's an emphasis upon the north side. This is the city of a great, or the word rav, the abundant king. So Jerusalem, the only city, which is the city of this, this great, great God, this great king, one who is abundant in all things. So Jerusalem ought to be important to you because of its history and, don't miss this, and its future. Because when Yeshua returns to this world, and I'm speaking about Messiah Jesus. When he returns to this world the second time, not speaking about the blessed hope, the rapture, but when he comes again to this earth to walk on it, dwell within it, he's coming ultimately to Jerusalem. And he is going to dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord. Where is that sanctuary? Well, it's the Holy of Holies. It is that, that place where the Ark of the Covenant was in between the, the two cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. There was where the presence of God dwelt. So Messiah is going to rule from that location. So we see here on Mount Zion, on the north sides of, of this city, of this abundant king. Next verse. God is in, and the next word is, is palaces, and it's speaking about the significant places in this city. 
that God in a unique way is there. There is that inherent connection between Jerusalem and the palaces, her palaces, these great locations, buildings within Jerusalem. This is God, where he dwells. Secondly, it tells us that, that he is known as a misgav. Misgav is a place of refuge. So in, and some would say that these palaces represent the structures, the wall, the entire wall around Jerusalem, that God dwells there. And it says here, he's known as a refuge. Now let's put it together. What is at the heart of this teaching from Psalm 48? Worship. And what we find is in the midst of worship, we experience God. The scripture says that he is our defense. And we experience his defense in the midst of worship. Worship is a refuge. Not just a peaceful place, meaning that we push out the things of this world, but also the dangers. It speaks to this. When we worship God, there's going to be a spiritual security. When we are careless, when we worship God infrequently and carelessly, we are to find ourselves in a dangerous position. So the psalmist is, is quite clear in what he's saying here, that God in the midst of worship, he is known as a refuge. Next word, verse, verse five in Hebrew, verse four in, in other languages. For behold, the kings, they are gathered together, and they pass through together. Now, what this is speaking of is this. It's literally the word kings, but many scholars understand it as referring to not the kings themselves, but their kingdoms, their empires, their rule. And they're all going to pass together, and the implication is, and become under his authority. This is what it's speaking of. That God is going to rule over all the kingdoms, all the empires of the world. He is going to take his throne and he is going to rule over all. Why? Because he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. All things are going to be brought under his authority. So again, this gives us a question that we should ask ourselves. If indeed that all empires, kingdoms, all seats of authority today, everything is going to go through a transformation and be brought under the authority of God, what does that say about me? What about my life? Am I under his authority? Now, again, if you want God's presence in your life, you want his power, his provision, you want to see things from his perspective, then we need to be people who recognize his authority over us. And what that means is we become submissive to him. So again, another question we need to ask ourselves, am I demonstrating submissiveness to God, his will, his plans, his purposes in my actions? Are my thoughts taken captive to obedience to Messiah? Is my action an action that gives evidence 
that I am under his authority. This is what this verse is speaking of. Verse, verse 6 in Hebrew, 5 in other languages. They, they see, and thus they are, are marveling. They are amazed. So now what it's telling us is this. When we are, are recognizing his authority, that submissiveness is going to bring about revelation in our life. Now, I've said this so many times. It's only when we say to God, God, what you reveal to me, what you teach me today, I want to put into practice immediately. I want to learn truth to obey that truth. When we have that, that desire, that attitude, God is indeed going to be our teacher. He is going to be a source of, of mighty revelation. And that's why it says here, look again at our, our verse. It says, they saw, thus they were amazed. And this being amazed caused them to be startled and to, to, to respond quickly. Now, this is a word which means to make haste. So when we see things from God's perspective, and let's put it into our context today. Now, I believe that we are in a transition time. I believe that things are moving rapidly in the prophetic calendar. We are seeing changes, consistent changes in this world that shows the rebelliousness of the world, the lack of submissiveness of the world, the rebellion of the world against the authority of God, the truth of God. What we see is this. The world is becoming more of a place of, and hear this word, abominations. This is what's happening. The world is behaving in an abominable way. And this is exactly what the prophets teach us is going to be the condition as we move in to the end times. You say, where's that found in the scripture? Well, when we look at that last government, that last world government of the Antichrist, we see that it's characteristic what the Bible reveals about this, this empire is that it's going to be blasphemous. It is going to be rebellious. There's going to be that spirit of the Antichrist, which is rebelliousness, blasphemous. It is going to set itself against God. This is what we, we should understand that's going to happen. Nowhere in the Bible is there that view that, that believers are going to bring about a wonderful change in this world where the, the great institutions of society education, the arts, the governments, and so forth and so forth, that they are going to submit to God. That is not going to be done by the faithfulness of the body of believers. What we see is this. The world is going to be brought to submissiveness through the judgment of God. And most of the world won't be brought to submissiveness. It will be destroyed. Very simple. This is what prophecy speaks of. Now, there's many people that just don't like prophecy. Why? 
They don't like the fact that God is going to manifest his wrath and destroy the majority of, of people and the wealth of this world. There is coming truly a resetting of all things. And that resetting is going to bring about, and hear this, it's going to bring about the, the order of God. In the same way, when we look at Genesis 1, and we see that initially the world was tohu vevohu, chaos, out of order, empty, void, did not reflect the glory of God. And the Spirit of God moved mightily where it says, Ruach Elohim the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and the Spirit brought change. Well, Messiah, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is going to move in the last days. These who teach that the Holy Spirit is going to be removed from this world, that is a false teaching. There is nowhere in the Scripture it says that. Now, when it says, you know what is restraining and is going to continue restraining until it's moved aside. That's what it literally says. Doesn't mean taken away, removed. How in the world could the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, be removed? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Hence, so is the Holy Spirit. Do not limit the Holy Spirit, his existence, his presence in the world to the body of believers, the church. That is a false teaching. The Holy Spirit existed before the church and the Holy Spirit will exist in this world, moving, functioning, doing things after the church is taken into heaven. Do not equate one to one the Holy Spirit and the church. That is a false teaching. It cannot be supported in the scripture. So it's going to be the wrath of God that is going to move through the spirit of God. And this is going to bring about change. This is going to put things into the order that God wants it to be in for the establishment of the kingdom. He does it, not you and me. We're called to serve him, be about the kingdom business, but we are not going to bring things into the order of God. God is going to do that himself. So the point is this. People are going to have perception. They're going to see things from God's point of view. And they are going to see what's going to happen. And I'm talking about believers, those who are worshiping God, receiving revelation. And they're going to be startled by it. And that is going to give them a sense of urgency. Now, I have a good friend in Romania. He assists us greatly, and he's doing so at a faster and faster and faster rate, meaning he's doing more and more. Why? I believe this verse really speaks and identifies his faithfulness in the sense that he sees what's going to happen. God's revealed it to him that we are approaching a critical time in world history. And therefore, he has a sense of urgency to get the word out, to serve God while we are still able to be, be teachers and such without too much hindrance because a time is coming 
when we are going to be greatly hindered by the world. Well, move on to the next verse. It says here, trembling seized them there. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember the context. What we're seeing is God is revealing his perspective. And therefore, when one knows that, he's going to be startled. There is going to be trembling that sees them there in that, that spiritual condition, knowing things. And it says, it says very clearly that because of that, they are going to, to have pain as a woman giving birth. Now, this word for, for pain is a, a word that really speaks about not just a physical pain, but also an emotional one. One that comes from knowing what you're going to go through. When you hear, and the context is, women know that, that going through labor is a very painful experience. And therefore, when these labor pains begin, when it's first known, I am in labor. The woman knows it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get more painful. There's a purpose in this suffering. It is going to give something good. That child's going to be born, but it's a difficult road. This is what the scripture is saying. Verse 8 in Hebrew, verse 7 in other languages. With an eastern wind. Now, an eastern wind usually speaks of judgment. And this is what he's foreshadowing. God's judgment, which is going to break, and he gives an illustration, break the ships of Tarshish. Now, these were known as great, strong ships. But nevertheless, the judgment of God can, can destroy these massive, these strong ships like this. And therefore, it's saying judgment's coming and there's going to be great destruction. Also, these ships of Tarshish, they carried precious and valuable cargo. There's going to be a loss. This is what it's telling us in this passage. And then we read in the next verse, just as we have heard, heard where? Prophetically, in the word of God, the testimony of scripture, it says, just as we have heard, thus we have seen, meaning this, there's going to be a fulfillment of what God has prophesied, what God has revealed through the prophets. You can mark it down. It is assured that it's going to happen. So the view of Judaism, and let me just simply say, when it comes to the end times, Judaism has a different way of looking at it, which I'm in total disagreement with. Most of the sages of Israel, the, the teachers of Judaism in the past and today, they teach about different scenarios. They look at prophecy. And they say, well, you know, there's, there's some good things and some bad things. Therefore, there's a bad scenario and a good one. They, they say you have to see what scenario is going to be fulfilled. This is false. What it speaks about is bad happening, meaning difficult things. But in the end, just like a woman in labor, in the end, 
there's going to be a marvelous, a great outcome. So we do not look at prophecy as perhaps this scenario, perhaps that scenario, perhaps this one. False. Everything, and I want to emphasize this, everything that the prophets have said will take place. The prophets don't speak about different possibilities. What they say will be done. And then we read, look now to the second part of, of this current verse, verse 9 in Hebrew, 8 in other languages. It says, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God has prepared it, meaning God has prepared this, this city. And here's a reference to the city becoming the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Notice the end. Ad olam. Selah. That means God has prepared it and it's for eternity, meaning it has a kingdom connection. What God's doing in building up Jerusalem, it is for the establishment of his eternal kingdom. And you say, now, wait, I thought the, the city of Jerusalem is going to be the center for a thousand years, a millennial. That's right then it's over. Well, you need to understand it properly. In the millennial kingdom, the capital is going to be Jerusalem. This is where the, the foundation of the millennial kingdom is, Jerusalem. And yes, that, that earthly Jerusalem is going to come to an end, but it's going to be transformed. There's going to be a new creation, and that creation is the new Jerusalem. So whether we're speaking about the millennial kingdom or the final state of the kingdom of God that we read about in Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22, what's the connection? Jerusalem. And that's why when people teach, you know, Jerusalem has no more significance. These are false teachers. When they think that God isn't interested in the land of Israel, that's no longer part of his plan. This is someone who has not studied prophecy nearly enough. They, they discount the promises of God. So we read here, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever, Selah. And now we come to a very, very critical, critical verse in this psalm. Now, I began by speaking of imagination. Now, this is not the normal word in the secular sense for imagining something. This is a biblical word. Yes, it's translated frequently to imagine something, but it's a word that speaks about a, a God-given desire. Something that he has revealed and a wise person, a true disciple, one who has been born again, this one will desire, want it, and with a great passion and commitment. And therefore, notice what it says in, in this verse. We, speaking about the people of God, we have imagined the, your, your grace, O God. That's what the text says. We have imagined, O God, your grace. Where? In the midst of your sanctuary. Now, 
your sanctuary, whenever that phrase appears, the sanctuary of God, what should come into our mind? Worship. Worshiping the God who is among us. The earth sanctuary, your dwelling place. God, you are with us, and therefore it is right, it's appropriate for us to worship you. And that's the second part of this verse. The first part speaks about a desire, a hope that's rooted in the promise of God, of God making available his grace. So it says, we have imagined, that is we have hoped, we have desired, we have passionately wanted, oh God, your grace. Now, the author of this psalm, the sons of Korah, they knew the significance of God's grace. Do you? Do you realize that nothing good is going to happen in your life spiritually and in reality until you are a recipient of God's grace? And it's only through faith in Messiah Yeshua that one can receive God's grace. So we read, we have imagined, oh God, your grace in the midst of your sanctuary. As your name, O God, thus is your praise unto the ends of the earth. Now, we see that grace is going to produce a kingdom outcome. And worship is necessary for us to have that kingdom perspective, to, to reap the benefits of God's provision in our life, his provision in resources and perspective and everything. Worship is foundational. I want to say that again. Worship is foundation. And this verse unites grace with worship. And the outcome of that, we've moved into the next verse where it says, As your name, O God, thus is your praise until the ends of the earth, meaning, that God is going to be praised throughout all of his creation. And, and what do we know? Well, notice where it says, as we conclude this verse, it says, your right hand is full of righteousness. Now, right hand speaks about authority, speaks about integrity as well. And therefore, God is a man of his word, He's a man of war, the scripture says in the book of Exodus. So he is going to keep his word. That's our God. He is faithful. The Bible says God cannot lie. And therefore, his authority, his integrity is going to bring about righteousness. And we know that this word righteousness is, of course, related to the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and it's righteousness. So your hand is full of righteousness. Next verse, verse 12. Leaven in other languages. Mount Zion will rejoice. And the daughters of Judah will be glad. So we have this two words. The first word, Yismach, which is more, will be glad. And then the daughters of Judah are going to be rejoicing. And here again, when there's an emphasis on women, it turns the context into redemption. So God is going to fulfill his plan through his redemptive work 
And this is going to bring joy and gladness into his kingdom. And the question is, how is God going to do that? What has to take place for God's kingdom to be established so that there will be ultimately joy and gladness among his people in his kingdom? Well, notice how this verse concludes. It says, Lama'an mishpatecha, which means on account of, and we can understand this as a result of, your judgments. God is going to judge. And that's why, and I've said this so frequently over the last few months, and that is when people say, and oftentimes people will say, we, we like you to come and, and speak, but you know, we want to be positive. We want to be encouragers. And therefore, can you not mention anything about God's judgment? Now, when someone says that, I take that as a clear indicator. God doesn't want me to go there. Not because I always want to speak on God's judgment, but I don't like to be limited and say, I promise I won't speak on this. And then God puts it upon my heart to teach that. So I don't want to be someone who is, is not honest. So I simply feel this is not the place for me. And those people simply are not those who understand God's revelation. Because notice in this verse, verse 12 in the Hebrew, verse 11 probably in your Bible, where it says, Mount Zion. This is a kingdom word. I was talking to someone not too long ago. And, and they did not understand how Zion is related to the kingdom. When you fail that and you associate it with Jerusalem today, you are incorrect. Zion speaks about Jerusalem in its redemptive state after the second coming of, of Messiah. So Mount Zion, a kingdom term, will rejoice. And secondly, the daughters of Judah, they will be glad or rejoice. Why? On account of your judgments. And it's referring to me, all this judgment, the wrath of God that's going to come in the last days. Therefore, he says, look at the next verse. Go around Zion, surround it, and, and count of its towers. Now, towers has to do with, with a, a place, oftentimes a, a vineyard, a, a farm would have watchtowers. So does a city. And it speaks of security. So from a, an idiom standpoint of that culture, the more towers that a place has, the more secure it is. And so that's what it's speaking about, Mount Zion. You can go around Mount Zion, go through it, surround the city and count its towers, it is a place of absolute security, safety. This is why people are glad and they are rejoicing. He goes on to say, next verse, set your heart to its walls. Again, a reference to security and strength and safety. And then it says, go up. And it means go up into its, its walls or its strongholds or its palaces. It's the word armonot, which has to do with palace, but probably in this sense, it has to do with its strongholds. Go up and look, observe this city. 
and you will find its strength, its power, that this city is indeed a city of refuge, a city that we can feel secure within. Here's the fact. It is ultimately when we are in the kingdom of God that the enemy is not going to, to bother us. Now, we know that through two ways. First of all, we know when it comes to the millennial kingdom that Satan is going to be bound. Satan is defeated. The cross defeated him. But he is still functioning in this world. He will not be bound and thrown into that abyss, uh, hell in other words, until right before the, the initiating of the millennial kingdom. We see that in the book of Revelation 20. He's going to be released after the millennial kingdom for a short while. We won't go into the purpose of that now, but ultimately he is going to be judged again and destroyed by being tossed in to that lake that burns with, with fire and sulfur forever and ever. So when we look at this passage of scripture, we see that there's safety, there's true security in the kingdom of God. Satan will not be there. So he says, set your hearts, meaning pay attention to its, its walls. Go up into its palaces, its stronghold, on account that you may tell to the last generation. Now, what he's saying here is, you and I need something. And what is that? You and I need that kingdom perspective. When we understand the benefits, the glory, the righteousness, the holiness, the safety, the security, the blessings of, of the kingdom of God, we are going to want to tell that and continue to tell it, spread that news, proclaim these good news until the last generation, until that kingdom is is established. So here's part of our work, that we're supposed to tell of it to the last generation. Now look at our last verse, and there's something surprising at the end of this verse. Verse 15 in Hebrew, verse 14 in other languages. For this is God, our God forever and ever. So we see that, that our God is eternal, and what does he do? Well, through the grace of God, he brings us into a new reality where we become God's eternal people, God's kingdom people. And what else? Well, notice the last part of this verse. Who yidnagenu al mut, which means he will guide you concerning death. Now, why is that there? Well, he is going to guide us, meaning he is going to take us concerning death, meaning this. He is going to bring us through death. One of the things we learn, and we all know how Messiah said, take up your cross and follow me. Cross is significant. Cross, that term cross is synonymous that's the word I was looking for, synonymous with, with shame and suffering, but in its final thought, with death. So when it says, take up your cross and follow me, learn that we're called, our ministry is to die. Die to self, die to everything. One of the things that 
God teaches us is how to die. See, a, a good teacher of Scripture just doesn't teach us how we're called to live, but how we're called to die. And I'll end with this. The term in Hebrew for knowing how to die is called misirut nefesh, which is the word limsor, which is to pass. So it's a word for self-denial, living ultimately in a sacrificial way, giving of yourself totally, and, and leading to death. Death is okay. Death should not concern you, fear you, or anything. Why? Because death is simply when this body is no more. That's okay. Because that releases me fully. Praise God when I am set free from this body of, of death and sin. This body of frailty. This body of weakness and disease. This body of corruption and mortality. No, I'm looking at being ultimately set free from that. And experience this newness of kingdom life in its fullest sense outside this body. So we learn from the scriptures not just how to live, but also how to die. Well, Psalm 48, a very significant psalm in teaching us a right perspective and being made ready for this kingdom transition when we move away from the world that we've known into a time that's going to surprise us, a time that may be fearful to many, a time that, that demands an urgency in our commitment to God. Death, don't fear death. Because if you're a believer, you have eternal life. We'll close with that. Until next week, shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank <laughs> you.